Hello, and welcome to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. In this episode, moderator Carlos Aguilar speaks with writer-director Julia Ducourneau about her latest film, Titan, which won the Palme d'Or at the 2021 Cannes Film Festival. This conversation was recorded at the Landmark in Los Angeles on the film's opening weekend. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Carlos Aguilar. I'm a film critic here in Los Angeles. It's my pleasure to be here tonight. Uh, please help me welcome the director of Titan, Julia Ducourneau. Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Julie. I feel like everyone's going to look at their cars different when they go home tonight. <laughs> Probably. Um, I wanted to start by asking you if you could talk a little bit about your interest in you know, uh, physical pain and the transformation of the body, because I feel like that's very you know, particular in your work. It is, actually. I, I, I do think that um, bodies, my character's bodies, um, is a very good ground to talk to yours, actually. And um, I do think it's a really um, interesting way to somehow um, touch a universal feel of our humanity. It's all the more important when you have a character that you know no one will be able to relate to for the first 30 minutes of your film. <laughs> So that was a huge challenge, right? How do you um, make people stay in the room in spite of the fact that you do not like her? Um, my entry point was her body. Because I do feel that there is not one way to relate to a main character. I don't think you have to necessarily morally condone everything that that character does. However, you have to feel for that person one way or another. So for me, her body, what she inflicts upon herself and what happens to her was really a way for me to um, try to make you stay with her. Um, I always use that very stupid example of, for example, in real life, if you see someone being stabbed in the hand in front of you, you've probably never been stabbed in the hand in your life. And if someone has, well, that's very big coincidence. But when you see, if you had to see someone to whom that happened, your first reaction to be, would be instant body empathy, instantly. You know it's painful, you know you wouldn't like it to happen to you, and immediately, even if it's a stranger, even if it's someone on TV actually, you feel for that person at that moment. So that was my entry point for the character. This is how important that is. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about find, finding your actress a god, and you know it's such a physical, incredible performance that's almost hard to believe that it's her first time uh, in a film. Uh, what was the process like? Well, actually, the process was fairly normal. Let's say it was normal casting, but I knew from the start that I needed to work with a non-professional person for this part. Um, for the reason that I did not want you to project anything else than the character and the character's transformation on her. So it had to be an unknown face, because basically if you had like a famous actress or a famous actor playing that part, you would have thought in your 
you know, in your uh, even subconscious, you would have thought of all the other parts that that person would have played. And those parts, there is a good chance that would have been gender genderized. They would have been gendered. And I did not want that at all because I want you to accept every single stage of her transformation and to accept the freedom that it is that she's going beyond all that in order to get in touch with her own essence, beyond gender. So um, thinking about that, I knew I had to take a non-professional person. I knew I had to take someone who had a very androgynous profile. Um, and that's why I actually started casting both male and female people, I mean men and women, basically, that's how we call them, uh, for, the, for that part, because for me at this level, gender uh, was irrelevant um, as far as this part was concerned. And, and so that was actually a very broadcast, you know, because if we're talking about... Men, what was the hell was that? <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so if you talk about men and women that are non-professional, we're actually talking about the world. So that was very broad. So my director of casting suggested that we should start uh, checking out um, androgynous model profiles on Instagram. She did that because I'm not on Instagram. So she did that and she came back with many profiles. And that's actually how I came uh, into meeting Agat for the first time. And the thing is that when you choose to work with non-professional persons, what you're looking for in casting, it's not like you know, instant great acting, obviously. What you're looking for is potential. What you're looking for is someone that you feel is ready to open up and get everything out, basically. So that's why the, last, the casting lasted so long, it lasted six months. And I made her come back four, five, six times, six times, I think, um, in order to be sure that that was the person I was looking for. Obviously, her looks had a huge impact on me because I think that when you choose someone, you really need to want to film that person. And I, I really had to, um, I came to the realization that I wanted to film every angle of her like, and to, to use every light on her because she has such a metamorphic um, figure that was incredibly interesting to me. After that, we spent a year working on the acting, so both on scenes uh, that did not belong to my film, because obviously my film has very, very, very few dialogues. So I used uh, scenes from other films that had a very broad spectrum of emotions in order to gauge what she had in her. So for example, we worked on uh, Sidney Lumet's network with the monologue, I'm mad as hell, I'm not gonna take it anymore which is very interesting because you start with some bitterness, you start with some sarcasm even, and then you go to full-blown anger and rage, and you end up on sheer despair and vulnerability. So that's a very interesting monologue to me. We also worked on um, uh, Donna's monologue over Laura Palmer's grave in Twin Peaks, because you have like this very big dramatic emotion that goes up to the tears. That's something very hard to achieve, and again, it was good for her in order to, to um, you know, um, try to get in touch with her emotion and how far she could go with that. And we work also on Killing Eve, uh, because a lot of Villanelle's monologue have a lot to do with Alexia's character. And then you have the opposite with Vincent Landon, who's you know a very veteran French actor who transformed his body over a couple of years, I believe I read. So tell me about you know casting him and the sort of big the man or ass that it is to to as an actor transform his body like that. Well, from the start, I knew I wanted to mix uh, the energy of a newcomer that is very raw and all over the place, but at the same time, like incredibly intense. 
and the one of a very famous uh, actor who is way more channeled, but at the same time is way more precise. And I thought that would be very interesting to mix both of them and to see how they would complement each other on set, which they actually brilliantly did. Um, so Vincent, I actually wrote the part for him because I've known him for 11 years now. Uh, we've been friends for that long. Um, we actually never talked about work, actually not about working together. It never came up. But somehow I think, you know, Vincent's character being the only bearer of true emotional connection that we can have in the film, it was very important to me that I had someone who was like top-notch with that, that could be like incredibly subtle in his emotions and at the same time very, very dramatic. As silly as that sounds, it's not so common in France. Um, and Vincent is a very, very uninhibited with his emotions. And I love that about him. It makes his, him so endearing. And so I, I, I thought about him quite quick uh, in the process of writing. And uh, very arrogantly, because he is a huge star in France, but very arrogantly, because we've been friends for so long, I knew that he was ready for that, that he was ready to you know, play with his image very much, because he had never been in a genre movie before. Didn't know the codes of my cinema at all, even though he had seen Raw and liked it. But he, for him, it was a bit like, uh, it was a bit, uh, bit of risk being taken here. But I knew he was ready for that at this stage of his career. And also, I thought, I think I can show him the way no one has shown him before. And this is something I'm actually pretty proud of. <laughs> you know, there's uh, several, you know, dancing sequences in the film which are really incredible. And they all sort of have very different connotations. And I know that Bonsand uh, is not a fan of dancing. You know, he, he actually that hates so it. And neither of singing. I think sing the Macarena was the worst for him. <laughs> Like, really, I mean, we, we rehearsed, we rehearsed, we rehearsed. And, you know, it was impossible. It did not go through. And, and I rehearsed with him, and we were singing like idiots, you know, together. We were singing the Macarena. I even did the dance for him, you know, for him to get the pace of it. Didn't work at all. And in the end, I just tried to embrace that. And I thought, you know what, the fact that he actually can't sing is very endearing and it's a very nice light on the character. So I kept it like this. But for him, it was a very big moment of anxiety <laughs> to do that. The dancing as well, but the dancing, it was different. I think there was, I think he surrendered into dancing way more than he thought he, he would ever. Uh, be able to do that. He surrendered and it was, yeah, there was a form of release there. But I think that it was also linked with the fact that not only did he not know the codes of my cinema, so it made him go a bit blind, you know, into the film, um, but also I'm someone who would never uh, show images of the film to the actors, but to no one in the crew. I don't do replays at all. I mean, how, yeah, do you say replays? Yeah. And uh, I don't watch the rushes, so no one else watches the rushes either. So basically, we just go f all in at every scene. And at the start, Vincent was very worried about that. Um, and, um, and we talked about it for a long time, for at least a year and a half. And I was like, Vincent, this is how it's going to go. Because this is how I work, you know, and I can't work any else. And I can't work while uh, showing you every time what we're doing and stuff like that. You need to trust me and I'm going to trust you and I'm going to make you feel safe. But you have got to trust me. And so I think that in dancing, somehow, it's just a reflection of this trust that he, that he gave me that was so 
so generous, you know, and he was a real trooper, to be honest, on set. It was amazing. And I think that it really shows in the, um, in the dancing part, and it shows that he's just surrendering to the character fully. I love that. You know, with the dancing and also with a lot of the construction of the characters, you do incredible work subverting gender conventions. I wonder if you could tell us a little about your, your, your thinking behind how you treat gender in the film. Well, I think that in order to debunk stereotypes that are linked to gender, you have got to show them first. Uh, so that's what I do. I think, obviously, the most prominent example for that is the car show scene, the oneer, um, where at the start, I'm starting, I'm, I'm trying, sorry, to mimic a male gaze that would be set on the girls and that would objectify the girls as much as it would objectify the cars at the same level. And as we go through the Warner, um, we get to Justine. Justine is a step further because Justine, you can hear her talk. And not only does she talk, but she also retaliates to someone who's assaulting her. So that's one moment where you get, okay, I have a character here. I can have empathy. I can understand. And she exists. But she's still seen through the realm of that stereotypes, you know, of exotic dancers and cars. And when you get to Alexia, things change for me. Because the moment she, and it's right from the start, actually, when she opens her legs, she starts looking through the lens of the camera. And throughout her whole choreography, she looks through the lens of a camera. So for me here, she reclaims, let's say, her own narrative. She becomes active when before the other women were seen as passive through that male gaze. And her, she's become active because now she's looking at you and you're not looking at her. She is looking at you. So that's an example of how I tried to debunk um, the, the gender stereotypes. Also with, for example, the use of light. You'll see that in the film, in the first part that is supposed to belong to the feminine aspect of the film, the light is very cold, it's very, um, it's very blue. And again, it's something that is socially constructed to belong to masculinity. And uh, yeah, and it's very harsh. Whereas when I show the firefighters um, together, they're always, you know, um, kind of sunk into that very warm, soft pink light. Um, I use also a lot of slow-mo on the part of the, of, of the firefighters, which makes it things, you know, more sensual, more yeah, softer. Um, that's another way to try to also... Um, um, blur, you know, the contours of their masculinity or of gender in general. So you have to understand that this is not something that was an agenda. It's not like I had my little, you know, program pinned on the wall, like, what am I going to do with gender stereotypes today? <laughs> <laughs> the idea was obviously to create a character, so Alexia, and also a relationship, the one she has with Vincent, that would just, like, try to... Um, reach to their humanity by shedding the skins or the layers of uh, the social construct, of representation, and what you expect from a character according to what they're supposed to, which gender they're supposed to uh, belong to. And uh, it's, uh, it's something for me that, that was so important in order to try to make emerge a real uh, unconditional love at the end, which means a love that looks past all these constru um, yeah, constructions or representations, um, and just portray two people who just need each other so bad that they're willing to forget anything uh, that the world has made them to be. 
Um, so that's why it was not just an agenda. <laughs> you know, since you mentioned Justine, I think an interesting thing, and if you want to talk about how your characters, Justine is a character that comes from your short film and from Raw, played by Garans, and also the two main characters in Raw are also Adrian and Alexa. And I, if you could you talk about how using the same names are, are they same characters in different bodies? <laughs> Um, actually, but for, for Garance, it's the same. Uh, it's the same body. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for me, so I have. Um, I think I have a big issue with um, ending my films in the way that normally you make a film, it has a start, it has a, uh, an end, and then you move on to something else, to a new topic, to new characters, to new stories. Um, and for me, this is quite hard. I I I, I think of my films are as belonging to the same gesture, as the same movement. And again, every time I'm trying to uh, shed the skins of the previous film in order to go deeper and deeper in my search of, I think, a form of truth, even though I might never find it. And it's okay, because the journey matters more. more. But uh, so it's really for me the same thing of going deeper. In that idea, the, the characters, for me, they, they, there is affiliation between them, as there is affiliation between my films, but for me, the characters are like mutated forms of the same characters. You know what I mean? It's like, for me, Justine, when I started with Justine, for example, it was with my first short that was called Junior, and she was 11 at the time, Justine, the character, and also Garance at the time. And uh, and for me, she has she has just it's just a character that's kept evolving through the films. It's not exactly the same, but obviously, when you shed skins, you're never exactly quite exactly the same as you were before. For me, there is a backbone somehow, but it, they just mutate. I see them as mutated form. And for Alexia, um, Alexia came to me after Raw. I mean, actually, I was in post production. And so, for those of you who have seen Raw, you know that Alexia at the end, thank you, <laughs> you know that Alexia at the end ends up in a cell. And I thought, what, what would happen if I would take her out of the cell? And, and I, I tried to, and actually that's where Alexia comes back to be, you know, this Alexia as you've seen, I just tried to take her out of the cell and somehow to grant her a form of redemption or redemptive arc, you know to see where it would take me, uh, as far as her humanity was left in Raw. No, it's, yeah, there is definitely something that comes to mind. Uh, I think, by the way, I think that creating something is always, I mean, doubts are always part of that. Your insecurities will never leave you. I mean, you can leave some of them with the previous one, but you'll find new ones in the next ones. But it's good. It's good to work with doubts. You know, this is what makes you go deeper, and that's good. Um, Titan, it's a good example for that. Because after Raw, um, I, um, I started having this, um, you know, like slithering anxiety in me. Um, I was starting to be aware of the expectations on the next one. And um, that was not nice, did not feel nice at all. Actually, I was pretty petrified. <laughs> I think the worst thing was that not only was I aware of the outside expectations on my next one, but I was so overwhelmed by my, my own. My main fear was that I would not be able to give as much love and energy to my next one as I did for all. I pretty much thought that was it, you know, that I was 
gonna make one film and I wasn't sure I was gonna have this in me to make another one. And that's pretty painful to film. And it was so painful that I was actually, um, yeah, petrified and blank for a whole year. Can you, and it's not a whole year where you go on holidays and you have fun. Huh? It's a year like sitting in front of your computer not being able to write. And that sucks, like bad. And so after, after a moment, I started being very angry at myself. You know, very angry for not being able to produce anything and also for actually uh, yielding into the idea that I would, I would make only one film. And this is actually was the trigger for me. I, I had a huge fuck you moment, huge, but at me and at the world. And I was like, you know what? I have to let something out and I don't care if anyone's gonna like it. It just needs to go out, you know, and we'll see what it gives. And that was a very, very foundational moment for me because I do think that the radicality of Titan would never have happened if I hadn't felt this fear. And we have time for one last question over here. He's asking about the references, uh, the car automobile references. Well, the first thing is, I'm gonna explain to you how I got to that and that's actually pretty simple. Uh, I had the idea for the last scene first. I started with the last scene because I started with uh, this feeling of a hope, of optimism, this idea of a new world, of a new humanity, uh, of love, of this unconditional love, and I wanted you to feel, the, to, to feel that and to leave the room with that feeling. So I had this idea of this newborn that was monstrous, but stronger, thanks to its monstrosity. You know, something that, something that had been seen as an abnormality at the start feels like it's actually very alive, very strong, and born in love, which is a huge difference when you see the first, I mean, the, yeah, the first part of the film. So I started with this idea and this feeling, and so I walked my way back to the beginning in order to actually start uh, writing the structure of the film and the elements of the film of how do I get there. Well, the how do I get there when you know when what's gonna be born at the end is pretty easy. <laughs> at one point I can't lie about it, you know, it has to come from something that is not human. And it has to come from something that is metallic. And at this moment cars burst into my head because cars somehow represent patriarchy in a very weird way. It can also represent masculine toxicity somehow. And, and, you, and especially like when you think about the male gaze I was trying to reproduce, this is a good example for that, you see? And somehow I feel that um, I tried to um, create something that was going beyond this idea of patriarchy, this idea of, of power, where actually my character would not only um, uh, be free to express her desire with that car, but also uh, a moment where they would be equal, but equal in desire, not equal through the eyes of someone else, for them, between them, in their, in their intimacy. And that's, I think, again, a way of reclaiming the narrative over the patriarchy that can represent the car. You know what I mean? So a real true moment of intimacy, and that's how I filmed it, actually. I always wanted people to believe in that moment and to believe in this, um, and the in the fact that it is um, 
that it can be sensual, that it can be uh, real, actually, that you can really feel it, rather than a freak show or something like that, where, you, you know, something that would be only shocking or anything like that. For me, it's a real uh, scene where she expresses a real desire, which is the first time from the start of the film, from someone that doesn't express many emotions. So that's something that I, I take pretty seriously. Thank you so much, Julia. That's all we tell me how. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. If you want to hear more conversations with filmmakers about the latest independent, foreign, and documentary films opening at Landmark Theatres, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit our podcast website at landmarktheaters.podbean.com. You can also check out our YouTube channel for videos of Q&As and other exclusive content. See you next time. <laughs>